0: Hello and welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. Merry Christmas and of course also a belated Happy Hanukkah to our Jewish listeners and Merry Yule to our pagans and if there are any Roman reenactors out there, a belated Saturnalia rejoicings to you too. So I hope that's covered pretty much everyone who might be listening. This episode is going out on the 25th of December so as you can imagine things are a tad chaotic and I am certainly not at my desk. But um, we have an excellent interview coming up shortly with Maxime Chouinard, uh, who is a museum's professional as well as being an Irish stick fighter and a connoisseur of the fringes, shall we say, of historical martial arts, the less commonly practiced weapons. Before we get on to that, this time of year is traditionally associated with eating too much, drinking too much and getting no exercise at all apart from the ripping of wrapping paper. This is great fun in the short term but needs to be, shall we say, uh, accounted for in the long term and you may find some free courses I have put together to help you stay healthy useful in that regard. The courses cover meditation, breathing exercises, so nothing too strenuous, some arms and leg maintenance exercises, massage, that sort of thing, as well as basic classes for the longsword and for the rapier. So, something to get you gently moving again in the new year. You can find these courses for free at go.guywindsor.net. Now, without further ado, here's the show. Hello, Sword People. This is Guy Windsor, also known as the Sword Guy. And I'm here today with Maxime Chouinard, who is a museum's collections manager. He is an Irish stick fighter. You can find his Irish stick fighting website at irishstick.com and also author of the Hema Misfits blog at HemaMisfits.com, which goes into a range of, shall we say, overlooked and less widely practiced historical martial arts. So obviously a perfect candidate for this podcast. So without further ado, Maxime, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for for having me.
0: It's nice to meet you. Now, where in the world are you?
1: So I live in know which is right next to Ottawa, Ontario, the uh, wonderful capital of Canada. And uh, yeah, like you were saying, like uh, many people in the region, I work for the Canadian government at uh, Parks Canada.
0: Okay. And you're working as a museum's collections manager, is that correct?
1: I am, yeah. I worked for many years as a museum curator, but uh, I took okay. up a new position at, at Parks where I manage the uh, collection of uh we have about 31 million objects in that collection, uh, and it's okay. from, uh, all over the country.
0: <laughs> wow. And um, what sort of objects are we talking about?
1: Uh, it's, it's everything because we maintain a collection uh, that's, uh, well, there's there's like two collections. There's the what we call the historical collection, which is more ethnology really, but it's, uh, collections that are related to the different parks and especially different historic sites that we are maintaining. Uh, which uh, uh, I, I should probably know the exact number, but I think there's about 200 uh, something of them. And uh, also every archeological find on crown lands and in, uh, in Canada. So uh, right now, like uh, one big uh, uh, archeological uh, um, uh, operation that we're doing that you might have heard about is the Franklin expedition and uh, the Antarctic uh, and uh, it's, uh, ships that, uh, uh, we're caught up in the ice in the 1840s, and uh, we're recently rediscovered. And we have uh, divers going there and bringing back objects, including swords, actually. Right. Uh, and we, we do have quite a, a, a nice uh, sword collection, which uh, I'm glad to uh, be able to, uh, to, uh, to preserve.
0: So you actually are involved in some way in, in digging up the Franklin ships?
1: Well, I'm I'm not really involved. I, I work from my my computer, <laughs> so uh, I I I supervise the work of other people that uh, have fun uh, working on on those objects, and I I go see them from time to time. But I'm uh, uh I'm I guess I'm at that point in my career where I tell other people what to do, but I I don't do any of the fun stuff anymore.
0: <laughs> sometimes there are good reasons to not get that promotion
1: yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get into being a museums curator?
1: Uh, well it was um, I, I studied archaeology at Laval University and uh, i my interest was always you know in in the objects more than uh, the um, I guess the the archaeological uh, operations themselves and um, so I decided after after my studies, that I wanted to go in museum studies. And uh, so I, I, I um, entered into the the master program. And it so happened that the museum I uh, was working at was a small little uh, historic site called the uh, Marin Center in Quebec City. Uh, the uh, curator that was working there left. And uh, the director knew that I was studying museum studies and said, would you like to take the position? And uh, wow. I I hesitated about uh, two minutes, and <laughs> I said, yes, yes, please. Um, and yeah, that, that was a decision that really changed my life. So it was uh, like many, I guess, like many things in, in my life, it was being at the right time, at the right place at the right time. And uh, from from then on, I uh, became curator at the uh, Museum of Healthcare in Kingston, and uh, then here at, at Parks Canada.
0: Okay, so yes, that's not exactly a career path that people can really follow.
1: It's it's very it's very competitive. Yeah, uh, there's yeah. very few positions, and I think it's it's worse in Europe from what I, I gather. Uh, it's a little bit easier in Canada to some degree, but uh, yeah, there the the uh, there's many how do you say many people call and uh, uh, very few people get uh, get chosen.
0: Right. Yeah, well, it's it's sort of a dream job for anyone who's completely mad about old swords. <laughs> yeah, I guess. There are lots of us who are mad about old swords. Yeah, um, I wonder so. why. I like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, I think, honestly, I think it's one of those sort of irreducible desires. It's like some people want to have kids, some people want to climb Everest, some people want to hold swords. Yes. And you can't really explain why anybody would want to climb Everest. If you don't get it, you'll never get it. Oh, if like it's not obviously, I, why would
1: I have? Yeah. Uh, I have about fifty-three antique swords in my collection <laughs> right now. And whenever ah. I receive friends, there there's like two types of friends that come to my place. There's the friends who are like, "Oh my god, this is so awesome!" look, like, I want to see them all. And there are the people who are like, uh, "Hmm, okay, uh, so let's uh, talk about something else." So the yeah, the some some people yeah. just can't get it, and uh,
0: it's, that's too bad. Well, I mean, that's okay. I mean, if everyone got it, then those swords would be unaffordably expensive. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I I don't have that many um, historical antique swords in my collection. uh, Just a few. But, um, yeah, visitors to the house divide neatly into two types. The ones who look in the study and go, oh, my God, swords. And those who are just like, oh, what's got those there for? Yeah, and you know, there's. I I have never ever tried to persuade anybody to take up swordsmanship, because either when when I say, oh yeah, and I teach social living or whatever, they either go, oh my god, how how do I start, or they don't. Yep. And if yep. and yeah, if they if they don't, if if it's not like when the opportunity is presented to them they don't jump at it, then it's just not for them. And that's perfectly fine. I mean, you know, my wife and kids have no interest in swords and they're lovely people. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, not my, a value judgment on their character.
1: My, my partner actually is, uh, we, uh, we do Kenjutsu together. We we've done since, oh, cool. since we met. And, uh, uh, she is, uh, she's not interested at all in the Irish stick portion. I always, uh, always joke that, uh, she prefers to cut people in half than bludging them to death. So that, that's a much more elegant way of uh, disposing of people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure. It can be messier, though. Yeah, um, I guess. Yeah. OK, so how did you get started with historical martial arts, sword swinging, that sort of thing? Oh, it's,
1: uh, it's a long story, I guess. I, I, so I started martial arts in the mid-90s and, uh, you know, like many kids, uh, I got pushed into it by my parents who thought I was getting bullied at school. And uh, the school was, uh, like many others, was very inept at dealing with that problem. So they uh, enlisted me in the local karate dojo. And I'm from a very small, well, a fairly small town, about 8,000 people, and deep in the Appalachian Mountains in eastern most Quebec. And the only martial art for miles around was a club of Kyokushin Karate. Uh, So uh, a very very tough style where-
0: Yeah, it's a hard school. Yeah,
1: definitely definitely enough definitely enough a, a stuff a soft style and they uh or they they teach you to uh you know become this human wall where you just take punches and kicks and uh but beyond that i was always interested in, in weapons and uh we did a bit of uh, uh kobudo when i was uh, at that dojo and i read really loved it and when i got to college i came up on this uh, Kenjutsu dojo that was uh, teaching Shinkendo, uh, which is a modern style created by Toshishiro Obata, and uh, I trained with him on multiple occasions. And I went to teach that style and later switched to uh, Ryu, the style of uh, Miyamoto Musashi. And uh, because I was always a person that really goes deep into whatever interests me, uh, so the year I started shinkendo, which was around 2002, I started researching swordmanship on the internet and came upon this forum called Sword Forum.
0: Oh, and, I remember the Sword uh, Forum. Yeah,
1: <laughs> many, many people do, and some, some some have good memories, some not so much, but. Uh, and through that website, I I came to discover HEMA, and I was instantly hooked I started to practice with friends in college and uh, from the beginning I was most interested in 19th century stuff like saber which I still practice to this day
0: okay so you're maybe best known for your Irish stick fighting Um, now my grandpa used to keep a couple of shillelaghs in downstairs in in the hall and he once sort of picked them up and swung them around. But unfortunately he was, he was too old and I was too young for us to mm. really train together much. Um, but so I don't really know much about Irish stick fighting. Where does it really come from? How do you know what you should be doing? Um, tell us about it.
1: So, uh, your story is actually quite familiar and, uh, I, I I can come back to that later on, but I had a lot of people come to me and say, you know, my grandfather or my father, uh, he knew how to use it, and uh, but he never passed it on, or you know, we never we never quite realized what it was, and we just thought it was something he learned in the army, or um, so yeah, the, the, like I think I again I arrived at the right time and the right place, so. I, um, so remind me how long is this interview again like it's six hours right because
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you have all the time that you want and, okay okay and, you, know, <laughs> you know it's it's my show so i get to say how long the episodes are all right the episodes are as long as you know you, you just keep talking
1: okay well you, you don't know what you got yourself into but okay <laughs> i'll try to be, i'll try to be concise about this uh no, so no, no, you, go for it. you go for it all right well um so i guess if you had told me Back when I started martial arts, I would one day be teaching Irish stick or betharach. Uh, as it's called in Irish. I I don't think I would have believed you. Uh, but through you know my research online with Hema, and I came upon groups of people researching Irish stick, uh, namely the late uh, Ken Franger,
0: and yeah, uh, yeah. And- Ken was a friend of mine
1: yeah yeah yeah. it was uh, I, n- I never got to meet ken actually in person i would have uh loved to, but we we did correspond uh, in in this group and online quite a bit um and uh in 2007 i was at an irish pub with my brother-in-law and uh I was we were talking about the story of some of my irish ancestors who came to quebec yeah and we decided that uh just like that we were going to spend the summer in ireland uh so uh a, a few years yeah, yeah that's uh you know that that's uh, I guess that's how a lot of uh, those things start um, and uh you know, a few years prior as I had been in Japan and I had the blast doing martial arts there. so I decided, well, while I'm there, let's do batarak. And in my mind, I imagined that there were probably a few schools teaching that, you know in there <laughs> yeah. and uh, so I contact people in that list and there's Louis Pastor. Also, uh, officially recently passed away. Uh, told me to contact this one guy, Mr. Ramsey, who he had learned better act from, from the year before. So, I contact him and he asked me, Are you Quebecois? And I say, Yeah, yeah, I am. And he answers, Okay, I'll teach you. Uh, because he considered that the people from Quebec welcomed the Irish during the Great Famine, and it's actually. Very common for people in Quebec to have Irish ancestors, as was one of the okay. really the, the big places for immigration back in the 19th century. Um, so, anyhow, I, I got to Ireland and I realized pretty quickly that not only are there no schools teaching the art, but most people have no idea what we're talking about. Uh, so... I remember one day I even stopped in a martial arts store in Dublin because we were looking for shillelaghs. We, we figured, well, we were probably going to need shillelaghs if we're going to uh, learn that art. And so we couldn't find any suitable one in Dublin. And the guy, uh, so I, I stopped in this martial arts store, and I asked, uh, well, do you have any shillelaghs? And he had no idea what I was talking about. No. <laughs> I tried to explain him what it was, and he just looked at me like, like I, I came from Mars. And a lot of people told us, you know, there's there were there was no such martial art. It was just people hitting each other in the head. You're getting scammed by this guy. So I start to wonder, what are we getting into? You know. So we find some shilleleys and we get to Cork where we meet up with our teacher, who was visiting family there. And he teaches us his style. And he had learned that from his family. Uh, and uh, you know, told us that uh, yeah. The, from all he knew, he was pretty much the one of the only people left in Ireland that, that, that knew this stuff. And so we uh, we take pictures, we take notes, and at the end of the day, he tells us completely out of the blue, uh, you have my per- permission to teach this. Now, this was never our aim at the beginning. We just wanted to try it out. But when he told us that no one else was doing it in Ireland, that, that he wasn't really interested in opening up a school, we suddenly felt like we were giving something really precious, you know, like uh, we were the, the, the last Jedis or something.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh,
1: so, you know, an, an entire to, a day to learn an entire style is not a long time. But lucky enough, you know, I was with my brother-in-law, Emil, uh, and we had been doing HEMA with, uh, together for a couple of years. And for three years, we trained together. And we corresponded with our teachers, sent them videos and pictures for comments and feedback. And after three years, we started to feel confident enough to start teaching it to other people. And so we did that. And uh, since then, I've been teaching in Canada, of course, but also uh, started teaching in seminars over the world. And we have groups um uh coming up in the states and uh, we have uh some in, in france now and uh this year actually was supposed to go to dublin to hopefully open up uh, help open up a group there but of course covid yeah. happened yeah so <laughs> that threw uh everything off uh but we're we're hoping to uh get back there when uh when things uh settle down and uh Yes, since then, I've been researching the history of Beth because I felt like I, I really needed to prove to myself that what I, I had learned was authentic uh, right. because there was so little to compare it to. Uh, we had groups like cans working on a few sources. We had like Walker or there's also Glenn Doyle who was uh, teaching his own family style in our, here in Canada as well. But otherwise, there really wasn't much. And so I was really pleasantly surprised when in 2009 we unearthed this newspaper article from the san francisco call published in 1903 fully illustrated from an anonymous author who was explaining better and the article contained some details that i thought were just too unique uh you know too similar to what i had learned uh there was there was just no way that my teacher somehow You know, research this subject for years and came up upon this. Like nobody knew this this thing existed uh, until 2009. And here was the 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 author explaining exactly how to hold the shillelagh, how to measure the grip, and this was exactly like we were taught. And that's the moment I went, ah, we have something here. You know, this is this is not uh, this is not bullshit. This is uh, that this is the real deal, and. Since then, I have come upon other sources, and um, you know there there's a lot of uh, similarities between <coughs> sorry between boxing manuals and even 18th century broadsword manuals that contain very similar techniques and principles, and that leads me to believe that's that's my theory, but uh, that the style that I teach, which we name Antrim Bada, uh, because it's from Antrim. County in Northern Ireland uh, became what it is now, probably around the early 18th century.
0: Wow, uh, that's that's quite a story. Yeah. Uh, I <laughs> imagine I, I imagine that it was really helpful having a significant martial arts background, so you had a sort of like a you you could discard a whole bunch of options because you knew they wouldn't work without having to laboriously test absolutely everything.
1: Yeah, that's it, um, you know we we didn't uh develop any new techniques uh, what i was uh what i what i'm st- still teaching now is what i was taught uh except for uh, like maybe a few uh stylistic uh, interpretations uh but I, I yeah i think it helped me to really catch on really quickly the uh what he was uh teaching us and also uh to be able to kind of i guess judge what we were Getting, uh, we're getting thought, you know. I kept asking him question, hoping to maybe, you know, um, uh, I can say, uh, maybe trap him in some way, like, say, oh, you know, that looks a lot like uh, Saber, what you're doing there. And uh, I, I realized very quickly that our teacher, like Mr. Mr. Ramsey, had no, yeah, he, he had no other martial arts background. And you know, we, I was asking him question he was like giving me a blank stare, like, I guess, like, I, I don't know. And uh, I, I just figured out that there, there's no way this guy in a small town, uh, Northern Ireland, somehow came up with this really complex style that is also so
0: similar to all the historical sources we have. Um, yeah. Right. And if, he, if he'd invented it mm-hmm. um, because he wanted to, I don't know, you know, pull the wool over everyone's eyes or whatever. Then he would have publicized it and had a school yeah. and made money off it.
1: So yeah, that, that that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. He, he was also very discreet about it, and uh, yeah, and he was um, uh, he made us promise two things when uh, when he uh, we we accepted to to teach the style, and he said uh, you you have to uh, you must not make money out of it. So all we're doing is. Uh, it, we it's um uh non-profit and uh, also you must not turn it into a sport it was very adamant about <laughs> about this uh so we are okay uh so we're, we're not doing any tournaments or anything like that but
0: yeah okay but I, I imagine you use some sort of sparring environment to help you train
1: yeah that that's that's one of the things we actually uh change a little bit from the side because my teacher was uh saying that the that uh it wasn't too much about, uh, sparing. And, uh, at first we were okay. Yeah. Like, let's, let's try it without sparing. But we realized very quickly that there's just so many things that it's, it's that, that are so hard to grasp without, without sparing. So we, like we decided, no, we, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta include sparing. I, I don't think, um, I don't think you can learn this with it really without, without it, uh, and be good at it.
0: Yeah, but there's a fundamental difference between sparring for research purposes and learning to fight in a particular style to win competitions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, I think that in, in most competitions, you know, it's and we see it in HEMA today, but it's, it's very hard to, in the long term at least, to avoid having people game the rules and uh, ending up with a system that's basically uh, uh, like doing that system for that system's sake um sure
0: yeah okay uh, now y- you have a website called Hema misfits i bracket i don't do longsword close brackets yeah. Um, <laughs> which, yeah. which is and you know and I, I've, I've had a good look at it um but i'm i'm guessing that some of the listeners may not have come across it yet so i will recommend that they go to have a look and obviously i'll put a link in the show notes But it's all about the less widely practiced historical martial arts. Um, So what are some of your favorites? And what would you like to see more widely practiced?
1: Well, you know, I guess if we talk about swords, which, you know, like we're talking in the beginning, like this is is really what most people uh, get into circle martial arts for. uh, I would have to say that, of course, saber is my favorite thing. Like I said, I collect and I sell antiques. and. Uh, swords and sabers and that's um totally been one of my favorite things i would say that i specialize in french martial arts from the 18th 19th century so mostly saber but also lacan and baton and i also practice british sources like angelo uh and also pugilism from walker and benedict Uh, and um you know that that's 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 one thing I'm, i'm really into and uh i but I think it's uh, it's getting more and more popular now, and in, uh, in uh, Hema context, and uh, it's a good thing. Uh, although some, I'd say, some sources still deserve to be better known. You know, I got into French sources mostly because uh, French is my first language, and uh, there was I I realized there was just no one at the time really doing. Uh, French saber or researching French saber. Now it's getting a little bit more common. There's uh, people like mm-hmm. Julien Guerry, for example, who are uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, working on those sources. But back then, there was uh, there's barely anyone. And uh, even today, we're we're really only a handful. And uh, British sources are really what's uh, dominating the uh, the scene. And uh, I, I I just saw because you know that the 19th century is so packed with manuals there's i think we have now more than a thousand
0: wow i didn't realize it was that many
1: oh yeah the thing is 1300 of them uh and uh there's i think the last time i counted french sources on saber there's about 47 of them uh and of course a lot of them just say the same thing uh right like, like most 19th century manuals do they're they're they tend to go
0: down to the very very basics yeah would you say there's a difference between like the, the fundamental style of french saber of the of the 19th century and say british saber of the same period mm-hmm. it's really
1: really really close and i think uh you know the it goes back to i guess the next point i wanted to make but that the um Uh, that the Ecole de France is like the the French school of fans really blew over Europe like a tornado in the 18th century. Absolutely. And, uh, it what it does is that in the end, everything looks like it. Uh, everything looks like uh, small sword, everything looks like uh, the 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 saber that's mostly inspired by by small sword, which I, I, I would say is counterpoint. Um, so yeah, British saber is is very similar, and and you know we, I, I think in the the saber world we tend to really kind of we, we tend to be very um, particular about certain details. We say, oh, uh, you know, oh, this this is the British style. They, they they have this this kind of guard, and but in the end, it's all it's all so very. Small difference, like small preferences, and oh, this style prefers to use cuts, uh, number two from this guard. Well, this, this, these guys prefer to trust from this guard, but when you look at it from, uh, you know, from far away, it it's it's all yeah. very, very similar. Yeah,
0: that, that was my read. And and again, that a lot of it does sort of it's, it's like its pedagogical approach or, or it's kind of its intellectual structure is. Taken straight out of small sword, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like I think this, yeah, this school really took over the scene, and uh, there's still in the, the 18th century there's still a lot more um, uh, diversity. And uh, for example, there's a, a manual that I'm trying to unearth right now. It's in the Musée uh, de Louvre in Paris, but it shows the Swiss Guards training when and what they it's look like it's illustrated and what they seem to be doing is uh looks like the sac and we're talking about the if I remember right about the time of Louis the sixteenth. Um oh, wow. so you know there's there's I think there's a lot more to it. But the problem is in France in the eighteenth century all that people publish is uh small sword treatises. So you don't have saber but, except in a few sources that tell you ears how to beat saber <laughs> when you're small <laughs> yeah. uh and uh yeah so there, there's there's this dirt of information uh and there's these very mysterious styles like espadon for example and we we don't have a clear picture of what espadon is and uh there's a few sources well at least one or two sources that seem to indicate that the Espadon, which was uh, a style that used mostly cuts, seemed to be very, very close to uh, Bolognese Sidesword. sword. Uh, really? So, yeah, I, 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 you know, we tend to focus a lot, like, oh, Sabre came from Eastern Europe and so on. But I think, at least in Western Europe, that one of the main influence um, was uh, was Sidesword, and that it uh, it stayed on for a lot longer than we uh, we could imagine. At yeah, because so we
0: tend to think of side sword sort of giving way to the rapier, which then gave way to the small sword. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I'd be, yeah. very, be very interested to find a, a sort of cut centered manual from, say, I don't know, sixteen forty or something, which would provide like a a basis, a historical basis for saber of the eighteenth century. That'd be really interesting to find.
1: Yeah, well, it, you know, there's those few British manuals, uh, but they uh, they're kind of their own thing, and they, they they I think they kind of mix what used to be, you know, maybe kind of George Silver stuff with uh, the, the the more French influence. So it's it's hard to, to tell because there's this again, this this big gap of knowledge between Silver and Thomas Page, uh, where we we don't know what things really look like but yeah we we tend to have a very linear view of fencing like you say it's so oh, mm. it's longsword and uh that's sword and rapier and then sword. but i think a lot of those things cohabitated at least until the early 19th century and um yeah we we uh we we don't have the complete picture because we only look at manuals and uh manuals only tell one part of the story sure
0: um, so any other? I mean, to, to my mind, I mean, I've been doing saber since I guess the late '80s. So yep. I'm I to in my head, saber is sort of mainstream historical martial arts. Yep. So yep. it doesn't really belong on a misfits blog. So um, <laughs> <laughs> well, not,
1: yeah, now no, but I, I like I would say actually what I think should get much more attention is small sword. Um, oh, I
0: love small sword. Oh. Yeah,
1: yeah. But not not a lot of people do, in, in, in and and It's kind of this uh, uh, little uh, you know, kind of little cousin that people don't necessarily like to uh, to mention. Um, yeah,
0: you know, I think I think that's because it. Hey. I back in the early nineties when my friends and I started a sword fighting club, and we were doing loads of small sword because coming from sport fencing it was really easy to get into something that looked a bit like small sword. Yep. And we wanted to make sure that like really good sport fencers didn't just come in and destroy us and say, Oh, well, historical fencing is crap. So we tended to focus on weapons where they couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Yeah. which It's kind of an odd way to think of it, but there's a little nugget of of historical martial arts history there. Um, But, you know, if, when the swords are sharp and you actually do it as close, if you fight as close as they seem to be pairing off in the manuals, yep. it's a lot like a knife fight.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's quick and it's,
0: uh, yeah. So I, I've, I've never really understood why, why, why people can sort of you know, look down their noses at it. Yeah. No, um, no, that's, but... that, that's
1: one thing you say, like people are interested in, in daggers, which are, uh, you know, uh, it's, Small swords are basically like really long daggers. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was, really
0: long and light and manoeuvrable daggers that will yeah pierce punct- puncture you with a triangular shaped hole that won't heal and
1: oh yeah you know, no uh, uh, they the, the dangerous buggers
0: yeah <laughs> okay um, yeah and there is actually a a small sword convention I think it's called the small sword symposium I taught yeah. a class at one about three years ago which is it's one that runs somewhere. On the North American continent, it mm-hmm. might even be in Canada, and there's one in Edinburgh most yep. years. Obviously not this year because of you know COVID and all that nastiness. So I know that there is at least a kind of, um should we say, a small sword underground that is you yep. know keep keeping the small sword flame burning. Absolutely,
1: um, and I, I I must say shamefully that I've never been unfortunately to 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 those events, and I really really want to. Totally um, worth going. Yeah. No, I, I, that's that's on my radar, and I'm really encouraging. And I, you know, I, I say we should be doing more smallsword, but even I, uh, I, I, I barely do uh, enough of it. I, uh, but like every, you know, every saber manual tells you you should start with a smallsword, and unfortunately, in EMA, we we tend to to glaze uh, like upon this and say, well, ah, no, I, I want to do the cutty stuff. So, I, I
0: know. Yeah. and and it's it's, it's cuz like so much of the, the like the groundwork is done with the small sword like establishing the guard and the footwork and the kind of the, the principles of hand position all those things they're all covered in beautiful depth and detail in with the small sword treatises and then they're just sort of assumed in most of the saber sources
1: but yeah like you say i think it's like it's kind of a cultural thing in HEMA that's uh, at the beginning people wanted to separate it from Olympic fencing right and uh, many people you know had to endure maybe some uh, online uh, fierce online debates with Olympic fencers about it then I think a lot of people have yeah. knee-jerk reaction now to anything that looks too much like Olympic fencing and so they look at small so like oh no uh, but that, that's, that's yeah, a sad, it's a sad sad thing yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, um. Hopefully, hopefully we will we'll get past this stage and, I mean, I. Yeah. I've, I've I mean I've been teaching Small Sword regularly for I don't know 25 years now, and it's it's got everything in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not. It's not. And and everything. There are so many sources, and they're so broad, and they're so specific that you you can actually really recreate the art with. Really solid confidence. Absolutely. This, and, this and, is how they were they were teaching it back then.
1: Yeah, and you still have uh, you know you still have classical fencing. You still have uh, even Olympic fencing can can help you uh, bridge some of the the gaps in there. And uh, uh, maybe you know, I, but I, I, again, I think it's 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 a cultural it's a cultural thing. People uh, people want to go. Uh, uh, swing a long sword, then, uh, people, uh, you know, uh, then uh, they're doing small sword. That's, uh, not necessarily their idea of, uh, uh,
0: probably the best things that ever happened to my career were the Lord of the Rings movies coming out at just the right time for me. Yeah. Full of long swords. Yeah. And then when that kind of tailed off out came the game of thrones full of long swords. Yeah. Right. Um, and we've got the Three Musketeers that get people doing rapier. We need yeah. something like like Ridley Scott's The Duelist movie, but like yeah. a whole series of super popular adventures where people are murdering each other with small swords, and that that will get yeah people doing small sword again.
1: Yeah, that that's always what I say. People, you you need you need movies like like when I was teaching Kenjutsu, uh, I remember there was a this huge huge. Uh, 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 out, outbursts of students in uh around 2000 or um, early 2000 when uh the, the last samurai came out right yeah everybody wanted to be like tom cruise and learn to fight with a katana and uh <laughs> and there was this uh all these japanese movies that were being released uh, uh they, they kind of trailed off unfortunately but uh yeah and i i think that's a huge influence and uh i i hope that uh I get, we can also get one on Irish stick cuz <laughs> there's not been a lot like i, I would I, I would uh i would love for uh john snow to have carried one in game of thrones but you know what does he know that, and <laughs> not, not <a>
0: <laughs> what what we need to do is we need to get a story set in 18th century ireland with a bunch of aristocrats killing each other with swords and getting beaten up by um by stick carrying <laughs> You know, Irish people, and, and, and if it, it had some scope and some drama and some depth to it, then yeah. we would get, then we would get a re- revival of both Small Sword and Irish Stick for yeah. just the price of one movie.
1: Well, I, it's the, the one thing I'm finding out uh, in uh, with Irish Stick is, it's very hard to sell so the idea of the the martial art in Ireland, uh, and I think part of it is because people perceive it as the this big stereotype, you know, the brawling Irish and what is shillelagh uh, and being all okay. leprechaun-y and uh, plastic paddy and all that. Yeah, it, yep. it's it's yeah, it's not an idea that a lot of people are comfortable with anymore, and we're trying to change that. You know, I'm trying to. Mm. You know, Trying to walk away from all the leprechauns and the uh, uh, flat caps and all this, you know, and sure. kind of give a, a, a new image to uh, to uh, and uh, Shillelagh, but uh, it's it's difficult. Uh, and uh, but I think there's a few movies that have given at least um, uh, winks to Irish dick fighting, and the the, the most uh, that well there was in uh, one of the SSN Creeds game. Uh, because I uh, there's one that's set in uh, 19th century uh, London. Uh, I can't remember exactly the, the name of the the one. I think there's like 50 of them now or something. Right. Uh, but uh, I looked at some of the gameplay, and I was like, that kind of looks like Irish stick So I, I asked, actually, one of my students who worked on the game, and he said, uh, he asked one of his uh, the... the project manager that worked on on the game and he said, yeah, yeah, we were inspired by uh, Irish stick fighting we saw on, on video wow. online. And I said, well, that's too bad. You know, you, you actually have uh, Irish stick fighting in your city. You could have asked me and I, I would have <laughs> uh, worked on it. And uh, the other I think unlikeliest place where I, I think I saw Irish stick is in uh, the uh, um, The Last Jedi. The um, oh, yeah. Episode 8. Uh, of Star mm-hmm. Wars, there's the scene where Luke fights Ray and uh, uh, what's the name of that uh, planet? I can't remember, but the uh, it's on Skellig Island uh, that was filmed, and uh, he grabs this stick and he holds it just like we do, and uh, oh, okay. and he starts doing the same parries, same types of strikes. A very short uh. sequence, but uh, I was I remember being in the movie theater and being like, "Wait a minute, this is Irish stick." <laughs> and i've been trying to find who the heck choreographed this damn movie and i cannot find it There there's there nobody's listed anywhere as and i know that this is a very controversial movie and a lot of people have uh kind of dumped on the uh, Choreography for this this movie, but if anybody knows who actually choreographed those fight scene, I'd be very interested in to talk with them and see if that's indeed uh, some kind of a uh, a wing they did that uh, the the scene being filmed in Ireland.
0: And, and and the thing is, unless the people going to see the film get the reference, yeah, it doesn't help Irish stick no. popularity. No, not at all. Um, so you need you need Luke there going ah, this is the better actor yeah <laughs> and
1: then <laughs> the ancient jedi heart of irish tech fighting <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, okay so how do you actually train i mean what 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 does your physical practice look like
1: uh well these days it's uh, uh it's a little bit different but we um so you know i i, I teach uh twice a week um uh, here in, in ottawa and um, we do about uh, classes uh, of uh, an hour and a half, and it's uh, it's usually divided in uh, uh, first, of course, the uh, warm up and physical exercises, and then we work on uh, uh, strikes and parries and some very uh, basic stuff, and then we get into the the more uh, complex techniques. And the last part of the class is uh, uh, focus sparring, uh, focusing on uh, trying to, to, to do some specific techniques we just saw uh, and then uh, the free play. Uh, so that, that's pretty much how, uh, my classes look like I've, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I guess I train like a lot of other HEMA people trying to, uh, you know, work with, uh, the same kind of equipment and, uh, working on, on drills that are very much inspired by, uh, uh by fencing and, okay. uh, yeah, I, I do a lot of uh, training at home. I, I think during the confinement, I had nothing else to do, so I, I, I've never been in such great shape in all my life. To be honest, I've, I've been training just every day, every day, and uh, yeah, I guess so you got, you gotta take what you can. And we've also used, um, uh, you know, because now everybody's working from home, and there's this big uh, Zoom, uh, uh, I guess uh, uh, call like a zoom revival going on or something and uh so we've used that with um my students to keep the level because uh we saw all these seminars that were getting canceled and we're like wow well, are we gonna keep keep the, the the flame going on so so well let's do it online and uh we've had some some success because i like a lot of people are realizing now with uh conference calls and all this is that uh you know, it's, uh, there are some advantages uh, at, at, at doing this and working like this and keeping in contact with people and, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. This is the thing. Yes, Corona has completely screwed all sorts of things. Like I haven't taught an in-person seminar this whole year, which is yeah. the first time for I don't know how many years. Yeah. Um, but there are also events that I've been to and taught at that I would never have been to or taught at unless we were doing it over the internet. And yeah. because, you know, maybe it's just a, sm- a really small group and they really just can't afford to fly me to the other side of the world for a two hour class or a, okay. you know, a two hour class inside a two day um, event, for example. Um, so there are some silver linings, I suppose. And yeah being able to actually reach people who are maybe, maybe these people can't afford to fly to a seminar or or travel like five hours by car or whatever to a seminar or maybe they have kids at home and they just can't get away for a whole weekend yeah. but they can they can put the kids to bed and show up for a two hour class so yeah. there are there are some silver lines and you know i i'm i'm not going to say i'm i'm fitter now than I was at the beginning of lockdown but there are it is certainly possible to you know decide to use the time if you have but again some people are, are much busy because they're working from home yeah. and doing childcare, and so it's yeah. not like yeah. it's not like they have more time now um yeah but yes yeah, so no, i me. i i think i was in the you know I, i've been
1: training a lot because i've been in the right frame of mind and um like i said i don't have kids and that really helps. Free time. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah, I, I understand that it's uh, the situation is really tough for a lot of people, and uh, it's it's okay if you, uh, you know, if you don't feel like you uh, you can train, like uh, you gotta you you get a lesson to uh, to yourself as well, and take care of yourself.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Conserve your spoons. Yeah. Um. Now. I've found on your Hema Misfits blog um, an article very perilous regarding sword wounds in yes. the, uh, the 17th century, if I recall correctly. So, and a little buddy tells me that you are actually preparing a book on blade wounds. Yes. Is this correct? Absolutely. Would you, would you, would you like to tell the listeners all about the gruesome and bloody details of what <laughs> happens when a sharp steel blade goes into a human body?
1: yes <laughs> Go Go so, ahead. so yeah like you say one project i've been working on is this book on the uh, medical context of hema and uh, not talking about medical you know modern medicine but rather the medical science and the authors contemporary to the arts that we study and uh like i mentioned at the beginning i was uh for about four years, was curator at the Museum of Healthcare in Kingston, and I've been in- interested in the history of medicine for a very long time through my work. And uh, I came upon these really interesting treatises uh, uh, that, uh, of course, uh, medical treatises, and probably the most interesting one uh, being that of uh, the surgeon Hugues Rabaton, who published his book in uh, on military surgery in 1768 after 36 years working in that field, and the guy worked in uh, the hospital in Landau, which is now in uh, Germany, but at time it was a French possession. And if you look at a map of uh, France and uh, Germany, if you look at the map around that region, you'll see that there's like this. Uh, Landau is would would have basically been really in this very awkward spot where they're basically everything around them is Germany or what you what know, what whatever, whatever uh, German uh, uh, kingdoms were were around there at the time, uh, but they were they were not in let's say in the most easiest place to be. And so Rabaton was uh, working at military hospital, and he would have it would have been really literally the forefront of a lot of um, military engagements. And uh, so the book that he wrote is massive; it's, it's 700 pages long. It's uh, the first half is about gunshot wounds, and the second one is about bladed weapons. So he covers uh, everything from uh, small swords, sabers. Uh, uh, even sights and uh, the, uh, the bayonets and uh, knives, everything that cuts or thrusts, uh, he'll, he'll talk about. But he divides it in body parts. Uh, so how different body parts can be affected by 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 cuts or by thrusts, and uh, so he, and he describes all these cases that he probably uh, noted in his um, in his uh, medical uh, journal and uh it's it's a very very illuminating uh uh book in in many ways uh because uh on one one hand it really makes you realize what is actually possible to do with a sword for example how hard it is to actually trust somebody in the head uh he Mm. describes uh uh Couple of very interesting cases where he said there was these soldiers that were um and there's two two separate cases. It must have been something fairly common, uh, where they were they were um, fencing with their swords and the scabbards, uh to avoid yeah. actually hurting each other. But that doesn't really go according to plan. And there's uh this guy who got thrust in the eye and he dies, and uh this other guy get thrust in the nose and I don't know one get thrust in the mouth. And um Contrary to popular belief, actually, uh, at some in some areas of Europe and in and, in and some periods, it was actually allowed to do autopsies, um, on, on dead bodies and especially on duelists because duelists were criminals at the time in, in right. France. So you you could open up the bodies of criminals, no problem. Uh, and so he uh, does autopsies on, on these guys and uh describes the how they died and. He's um, basically all the wounds, all the fatal wounds that happen to the head are going either through a very precise area of the eye uh, or through, a again, a very, very awkward spot in the nose. Or the other one through the mouth is actually a, a terrible case of bad luck because it goes through the grand occipital which is where your, uh, the, the, the spine connects to the brain. So he must have had his head tilted back.
0: Right so that back, The yep.
1: sword came in. It went right through that hole in the brain. But he's, he's, he's pretty clear that it's, it's not easy. And even with bayonets, you have cases coming to him with people who have uh, bayonet thrusts skidding on their, uh, their skulls. You know, not not entering anything. Um,
0: That's kind of what your skull is for.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's a, it's a tough uh, it's a tough bone, and uh, but on on the other hand, it also makes you realize what is actually possible to do with a sword. Horrible things. <laughs> and you know, it's something that we kind of forget sometimes in HEMA. But those things will cut cut you wide open, guy. And people who survive wounds often went on to live their lives totally crippled. And if they didn't die days after, uh, for days of complete agony. So it's, uh, even for that aspect, it's a good read because it puts back into perspective what the whole thing was. And it's kind of humbling in a way to, to read that right. and see what, uh, you know, uh, like a lot of people were against duels and a lot of people were, uh, uh, and wanted to ban this, and you can understand why when you read this, when you see people, uh, you know, that uh, can't use their legs or arms anymore, and I can uh, can only imagine what it is like if you're a, a soldier in 18th century France, uh, returning home with a, a crippled arm or crippled leg. Um, so yeah, and, and but other than that, it's. Uh, it, yeah, it gives a lot of details lots of lots of gory details if people want to read the ar- the article i i did on Ré-Baton, i uh, i want to award them there's uh, I,
0: there's some I'll link, parts i'll link to it in the show notes of course
1: sure <laughs> and uh, but the the book i want to um, i want to write about is going to be probably mostly about him because nobody else did did the work that he did and even uh even um like 150 years later people were still citing his book and saying nobody oh, yeah. else nobody else did that He's is uh, the source uh, on, on um, sword wounds and uh, but there's a few others that wrote on it like Jupiter and uh, Larry uh, for example uh, also made uh, a few en- entries in their uh, their treatises about uh, uh, saber and uh, sword wounds. So yeah that, that's gonna be an interesting project.
0: So, so, your book is going to be sort of like a, a, a highlights of these sources and a discussion of you know, the general kinds of wounds you can expect from mm-hmm. sword fighting for real. Is that correct? Yeah.
1: And, it, yeah, and it, you know, you, we have to take this into context, of course, because uh, a lot of these guys, they're not concerned with what kills you. They're concerned with how to save people. Uh, so, right. Although, although Ravaton talks a little bit about you know he says for example if some guy get thrust to the the heart he says you'll never see a guy like this on your table because they'll die instantly like there there's like he says in 36 years of practice i've never had to treat any thrust to the to the heart and there's uh but then there's this one case uh by um uh what's his name again um very famous surgeon anyway, but then the name will come back. But uh, in the 16th century, who tells us the story of this guy who got thrust in the, the heart and went on and ran for, for a few miles and collapsed and died. But what I found out is that this case gets repeated by every single medical author afterwards and nobody else has any other case like but this before.
0: Because it's unusual.
1: Yeah, because it's extremely unusual, and you see a few of them them in the 20th century, uh, even even very recently. But it's it, those are medical oddities for sure. But yeah, anyway, I, uh, I,
0: Sorry, I, sure. I've been to a lecture by a surgeon um, who this kid fell into a quarry and he got a steel spike coming in through his lower abdomen and up out through his shoulder, piercing his heart on the way. Wow! And the, yeah, the fire brigade cut him off the spike, left the spike in, took him to the hospital. And they basically had to pull it out a centimeter or two and fix the damage and pull it out a centimeter and fix the damage. And basically they managed to, they managed to save him. Yeah, and yeah. The, reason, the reason that happened, the reason he survived is because as the spike went through him, hmm. um, the, kind of, the flesh of the heart was sort of sealed around it and yeah. it actually managed to keep going. But of course, yeah. if you just then pulled it out,
1: oh yeah, no, you would have died in
0: died in seconds.
1: Yeah, that's already yeah. there, there, there's uh, and especially in the 18th century, forget it. There's no way you can yeah. Yeah, yeah. repair no that. Like uh, that. The, the like Ravetan is also very very clear about this. He says uh, if somebody get thrust to the abdomen, it says I much prefer to if they get caught, because then you can see what the damage is. But if somebody get thrust, then you can try and try and uh, you know kind of divine what whatever organ was touched. But you can't open the guy, so you just gotta pray that no vital organ was uh, was damaged. And and and, uh, even uh, I'll cite in the book some sources from World War One. But even then, uh, uh, even by World War One. At the start, most victims that were uh, shot through uh, through the abdomen, most of these would most of these people would die uh, because uh, th- th- it was such a mess to uh, to, uh, to to treat that um, with the the uh, the knowledge and equipment of the time.
0: Yeah, and they uh, didn't have they didn't have antibiotics to treat the peritonitis that would inevitably result from a pierced gut. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They... They they had these methods to try and uh what to control what Reveton calls accidents which are uh, infections, uh, and uh, one one of the methods he uh, he, he recommends is uh, uh, for for this one guy because he was wounded in the hand so it's to plunge his hand into the neck of a bull that is being slaughtered and. Huh. I, I'm not sure how you uh, <laughs> how you convince the, uh, the 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 butchers to let you do that every single day, uh, but he apparently did it. Then of course that that didn't help at all. But yeah, people had, had <laughs> these, these, these oh, very interesting trying. treatments. Yeah. <laughs>
0: have you have you read Donald McBain's The Expert Swordman's Companion? Yeah, I did. Yeah, because there's a one. His his autobiography at the beginning has he is wounded many times and he actually describes like he, he got blown up by a grenade and the monks that treated him put literally a puppy's intestines on his face to, <laughs> to cure him. It's was like, I'm not really sure that that, that would do much good.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of the science back then was, uh, it, it was very empirical. Like people would try something and the, the patient would somehow recover. And oh, that was probably well, the yeah. puppy's intestines that I, <laughs> I happened to to try on him. So that like that works visibly. <laughs> yeah. So like the scientific yeah, method I'm, was not quite perfected yet.
0: I'm, I'm gonna have to go back and re-record the intro a bit and put in a content warning for like <laughs> <laughs> graphic, disgusting descriptions yes. of 18th century medical practices. <laughs>
1: and and you know just uh, again. I, Let's uh, talk a little bit more about this, but I, one of the, one of so so one of the theories I have is that this the this the medical knowledge at the time might have uh, uh, influenced a little bit the the what people perceived as being um, uh, deadly fencing techniques, um, okay? Because uh, um, you have uh, in the very late 16th century, you have Ambroise Perry, who comes up with this, uh, that was the name I was looking for before, but it, he comes up with um, uh, arterial suture, uh, because before this guy, when, if you got caught, and if they severed an artery, what they would try to do was they would try to cauterize it, and that's a pretty horrible way to try and uh, close up uh a, highly bleeding wound and uh so from then on it became very much 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 more easier to treat cuts you know if you get your arm cut they could suture the arteries of course there's a chance of uh, infection setting in and all that uh they, they had a much higher chance of survival than they did before that and i'm always wondering did this somehow influence the uh uh the trust fencing that was going on back then and people deciding that, well, you know, trusts are now a lot more deadly than than cuts in many ways. Uh, or, you know, even this this uh, focus on the heart that starts to appear with small sword, you know, and I, I wonder if it's, again, something that people learn that, well, one of the most efficient ways of killing someone on the spot is trusting him to the heart. Of course, people probably knew that from empirical knowledge before that, but I wonder if the all the, the, the medical literature that appeared at the time kind of reinforced those ideas and somehow influenced Fencing. Um, uh, have you read Vigiani, Andrew Vigiani's Lost Caramel? Uh, maybe a while ago. I Okay,
0: because it's been a while since I've read it too, but I have a suspicion or a recollection that he talks about forehand blows from a right-hander being Mm. better because the heart lies on the left side of the body and therefore you know right-handed forehanded blow will arrive to the left side of the body and therefore be more lethal now the heart isn't actually on the left side of the body and it's not empirically true but it does indicate that there is at least somebody is thinking along the lines you're describing
1: yep and yeah, and there's uh, you know, true um uh, it, it, it remind me Vigani is what year again?
0: Vigiani, uh, his book was written in about fifteen fifty one and published in fifteen seventy. Okay. So yeah, it's about the,
1: that time where people start to really revise the old anatomy um uh anatomical uh literature. Uh you know, there's um uh, uh there's all these uh these authors that finally start to to look back at um, uh people like uh aristotle or um uh, and they they say well you know all these theories that we had about the human body are wrong because uh look i've opened up the body and i i can't find uh the five lobes of the liver and uh, but they say they've been saying since antiquity that the liver has five lobes so as somebody might must be wrong and what a lot of these these guys realize is that the ancient otters were, were opening up dogs, and they uh... were basing their 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 knowledge of the human anatomy on those animals. Uh, and of course, we're we're similar in some ways, but we're very different in others. Uh, so, and the, and you had people, you know. The, the, the people that knew really what the inside of the human body looked like was surgeons but surgeons were mostly illiterate you know, barber surgeons were the one cutting uh, up people the physicians were the educated one but they would never go and touch their patient let alone open them so they would read off uh, old uh, uh, old medical uh, uh, books and uh, while the surgeons were opening up dissecting bodies but not really looking or taking attention they would just describe whatever the, the otter was saying and uh and the, the surgeons probably didn't, didn't even understood what these uh physicians were saying because it was all uh, red and latin uh so it's it's this right. very very kind of self-defeating <laughs> uh, <laughs> mechanic that went on for 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 centuries and then finally, in, in the 16, late 16th century, people are starting to, to ask some questions and say, well, I don't think that's how it works. Uh, yeah, and that, 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 and then we, we get to uh, uh, this modern medicine today that uh, is, uh, is, is very different. But like we were saying in the beginning, uh, modern doctors today, they, some, some of them might see a lot of uh, knife wounds but never to the same level as uh, people like, like Habaton did in the, work uh, working military uh, establishments.
0: Yeah. That you, fortunately we don't live in places where, or in times where, you know, stab wounds are that common or cut wounds are that common. Um, yeah. 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 I actually have a, a friend of the family is a trauma surgeon and okay. he traveled to various different places based on the kind of, um, basically the kind of ways that people were killing each other so that he could study, like, well, okay, people in this area tend to beat each other to death with sticks, right? Okay, I'll go work there for a while and see a lot of, like, club wounds. People in this area knife each other. Okay, I'll go there and study knife wounds. People, and then then he moved to America to study gunshot wounds, and... And he's, he's still working as a trauma surgeon in in the States. Okay. Wow. So he's, he's found his calling. But, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You just don't see the, the same level of blade violence, which I think is a very good thing. Oh, yeah, happy absolutely. I'm being a, being a theoretician in, in that regard. Oh, uh, and... Um, just, I just, I have sex. I'm a raging pedant. Vigiani's book was printed in 1575, not 1570. I don't know what my brain was thinking okay. about right <laughs> that. Not, it will make the slightest bit of difference. But I am a raging pedant, and there you have it. Okay, I do have um, one more question for you, and uh, you have entirely free reign to interpret it however you please. Somebody gave you a million pounds, or more than that, dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, what would you do hmm. with the money?
1: Um, I think what I would do is probably create some uh, some sort of scholarship for uh, uh, is, is, um, students of history to um, work on uh, uh, historical martial arts subjects. Because um, I think that the... The martial arts scene in EMA is going fairly well. Tournament scene is going well. There, of course, there's always things that could go better. But I, I think that uh, one thing I regret that's been a little bit pushed over now is, um, is, is the the lecture aspect. Like when I, I used to go to a lot of events and there would be those lectures and people sure. talking about their, their research and discoveries. And now it seems like it's Less and less thing like people want to go to the tournaments. They they want to you know they, they, they want to fence other people. And uh, there even if there is a few lectures, it's, it's like four or five people attending. Um, so I, I, I think we need uh, we need uh, more of that kind of research, and we need to encourage that and uh, through academia, academia or whatever else. Um, but yeah, we we need to, to working on the techniques, working on the manuals is great, but we also need people to explain us the the, the context of uh, all that all that fencing.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean that that's why I invited, uh, for example, Elena Yanniger onto the show. Um, she's a medieval historian, and so she can give us details and background. Uh, and there are actually you know loads of loads of people who are doing the sword fighting stuff are also doing like really high level research too. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I try to get them on here and they can talk about their research and it's, it's not a lecture, but it's, it's something. So I I completely agree with you and I think it would go splendidly. And I guess the question really is um, how do you create the environment for this scholarship to take place? So for example, Mm -hmm. you know, are we sending students to go and study in a particular university or are we creating a conference with lecturers from all over the place and then subsidizing some of these scholars to travel to the conference or, I mean, any, any specifics on that?
1: Yeah. It's a good question. Uh, I think I, I, like what I would love to do is, uh, is to, um, to do conferences i think because it's one thing for this to uh to go through academia and you know to have uh bursaries and uh uh publications and all this and uh but i i I think that it needs to stay also within the participative community that is hema and uh because if uh if academia, if this this was only taken up by academia, I I think we will see a much bigger divide between uh, b- between the two, between the academic world and just the Hema uh, practitioners. And uh I had a I had a teacher who, and during university, who had this theory that really influenced the way I I approach. Uh, historical um, uh, historical uh, publications now but it's he was saying that history used to be extremely popular in the 19th century and the early yeah. 1900s. and at some point what happened is that academias took it over, brought it to their ivory towers and said this is this is ours now. Uh, and uh, this is how you do proper history and all your you uh, amateurs uh, you can, you can read our books if you like, but you're you don't have to be involved anymore and that really dealt a sev- severe blow in at least in his mind to uh, to history because now the people doing history were not like lawyers and um, and the like common people they were yeah. yeah they were academics talking to other academics. And uh I, I I think that we need more academic interest in HEMA, but we must be wary of um yeah, we must be wary of that happening because I I feel like we uh it's, it's the same thing that's happening with uh with history in the nineteenth century that we're seeing with, with HEMA. It's people that have a very deep passion for it. They're not necessarily professional historians, but that that's fine Uh, and uh, we must not just hand it over uh, not hand at least part of it just to just to academia
0: yeah and the same is true for the actual certified thing I mean I'm a professional my job is to do this and but my job is to make it so that amateurs can do this at the level they want to do it at whether that's just you know turning up and having fun on a Tuesday night or whether that's actually it becomes their career, but but we you can see in in academic field certainly is like no no I'm sorry but unless you have at least uh, a BA already we we're not even going to show you this stuff yeah and that's yeah. that's really really annoying um, yeah. but there's still a massive interest in history I mean there's the History Channel dear God um, and there are all sorts of history podcasts and you know mm-hmm. popular history is a massive genre in publishing. So I there's hope. Yep. There's, there's definitely hope. And people who are actually trying to make this stuff accessible, which is which is good. Yep. Okay, so your million dollars will go into a conference, a heavily sponsored conference to encourage people who are not academic historians to maybe pick up the tools of academic history and to, you know, do better and deeper research is that a fair summary I would, yeah 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 excellent yeah I, I, that. well you know i say this to pretty much every guest who who answers that question because they have such excellent ideas yeah, if i had the money i would give it to you <laughs> great <laughs> but sadly i don't i'll send you my uh, bank account uh <laughs> oh yes yeah, please do and i'll sell that on to some of my less scrupulous colleagues and yes excellent <laughs> all right well thank you very much for joining me today maxine that's been a delight well thanks for having me it was great thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed my conversation today with maxine remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast to find the episode show notes your free copy of sword fighting for writers game designers and martial artists as well as a wealth of other things if you're looking for the free courses meditation joint care Breathing, longsword, and rapier. You can find those at go.guywindsor.net. Thanks, as always, are due to my lovely patrons on Patreon. You can find us there at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. The support really helps, and especially as I'm getting assistance with the podcast to help me keep on track. So a special shout out to Katie McKenzie, who has been indefatigably transcribing back episodes and generally helping keeping everything on track. So, tune in next week when I'll be talking to Nora Canaday, who is a watercolorist, uh, calligrapher in the sort of the medieval style, an artist who is extraordinarily—I will not say talented—and if you understand, if you listen to the episode, you'll understand why I will not say talented. I will say very, very highly skilled. Um, and she is also a swordswoman, and uh, has. I first encountered her when she contacted me about using my Fabris scans for preparing a translation, and we talk about that a little bit on the show. The show will go out as usual on the Friday, which happens to be New Year's Day, so yes, we don't particularly regard holidays as time off here, but obviously everything is pre-recorded and uploaded in advance, so... Uh, We may be slower than usual at responding to emails and what have you. So I hope you are having a wonderful and festive season. Lots of presents, lots of food and of course lots of exercise to burn off all of that loveliness. I will see you next week.